Welcome to episode 182, Developing Clinical Resilience, Nurturing Self of Therapist Beyond Self-Care, featuring Megan Van Meter, Licensed Professional Counselor. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. This episode is proudly sponsored by Best Notes Electronic Health Record, software built for practices poised for growth and compliance. Visit bestnotes.com slash clearly clinical for a free demonstration. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and today I am delighted to be joined by Megan Van Meter. She is a multi-licensed art therapist. Uh, she is an LPC as well as a licensed mental health counselor, and she is particularly interested in understanding the person of the therapist and what therapy work does to us as helping professionals and how we avoid the traps of things like burnout. Thank you so much for joining us today, Megan. I'm happy to have you. Oh, I am so glad to be here. Thank you. So why don't you take a little time and tell our listeners how you became to have this specialization and understanding the impact of self as therapist on our work and on our clinical outcomes? Yeah. um, I was trained outside the box. My master's degree is in art therapy, and that program was very experiential. And we had to learn about the person behind the therapist first. We had to be in therapy before we could even start our internships. Um, And everything that was done in class, we were you know, we were the test subjects. We, we ran things on each other. We knew all about each other's business. And I got out into the world of employment right as managed care was taking over. So I was kind of ousted from the get-go and sent to the sides, told I was not really a therapist. And I got to watch mainstream mental health and watch the struggles happen um, in a way that made me wonder, did their programs fortify them from the inside Mm. out. And then, um, you know, through the magic of inclusive licensure, (laughs) I got to be part of the main circus. And from there, I was attending continuing ed opportunities with therapists. I could tell were just hungry for techniques, any techniques that will make me a better therapist. Just this automatic assumption that I'm not good enough Mm. just filled the room. And again, I wondered, did their programs that their training programs not fortify them from the inside out first. And that seemed to be the case. So I started a little business. Um, it didn't succeed because, you know, A, I didn't have time to make it succeed. And B, what people wanted from me was different than what I was intending to offer. But it was experiential professional development for therapists to learn about the person of the therapist. You are the tool you know, you walk into the yeah. therapy session, you're making, you're the embodiment of therapy. Um, it's not about your techniques and who you studied under and all of that business. So I was trying to introduce people experientially to find their strengths and own their strengths and adopt a healthier mindset of, I am good enough. You know, I can do this work competently. Um, but people instead wanted me to teach them tricks for making people talk because that's kind of a narrow um, and erroneous assumption about what art therapy is. Anyhow, art therapy's goal is not to make people talk. Um, So that didn't work out. Then I went and taught in a graduate art therapy program. And that program was not nearly as experiential and involved in the person of the therapist as mine was. And I could see the anxiety in the students hitting their placements and being nervous that they didn't have anything to offer and looking for techniques. More of this, all I need is a good technique and I'll be a good therapist. Um, So I saw that happening in those students and I realized, okay, this must be the state of affairs that most programs are so caught up in dealing with teaching competencies that they're not necessarily creating a sense of competency among the students who go out into the fields to become the therapists. And so the pandemic had hit and um, I knew our kind, we were all suffering greatly, over overuse really of mental health services. And I decided I'd been fighting the private practice bug since 2003. So I decided, I guess it's time. And I really want to focus on helping professionals who are identifying with all of those horrible, yucky feelings, the darkness inside, the mood and motivation crashes, where they thought, 
doing something they loved was going to bring light to the world, and instead it's bringing darkness into their own. Thank you for how poetically you just put that. Um, I think, yeah, I can only really speak for myself and in conversations I've had with colleagues, but the sense of being clinically exhausted, for lack of a better term, is really, it's real, it's apparent. And I know I've experienced it myself. I, I would have a hard time believing that any clinician hadn't had moments where we're lacking compassion or we're just feeling completely overwhelmed or detached or whatever the word is for you. Um, but I think this is one of those conversations before you and I started recording that we're not really talking about enough. As you said, like we're having lots of conversations about manualization and here are the interventions to do when XYZ happens. And yet the research really speaks to something else that that even the most effective, quote unquote, research-based, quote unquote, methods don't work all of the time for everybody. Why is that? And it comes down to this magical fifth element, which is the therapist themselves. Can you speak to some of that and what you found over the years in understanding the research about why it's so critically important for us to not just think about the interventions and, and the theory or method we're using, but actually ourselves as a person we're bringing into the room or into a virtual session? Yeah. And that has actually received research attention. Probably the most, um, I don't know, I guess we'll say wicked one out there <laughs> is Bruce Wampel, um, who really has his he, his background is in math. So he, he does data. And he has sort of deconstructed um, mental health standards with so-called evidence-based practices and the research on those and is saying, you are not examining the role of the person of the therapist. You can't just, you know, we're not all interchangeable and plug and play. Um, but he articulates in a way that people who really love data will understand. So they that may be legislators, for example, um, policymakers. Um, so he's a good one. Uh, David Wallen also is a big advocate for um, we are the tools of the trade and looking at attachment, our own attachment issues and how they play out in the therapy sessions, in our relationships with clients. That's huge. And yet you don't see that being addressed at all. It's as if therapists came from nowhere and they only began to breathe air when they started grad school. <laughs> they have no history that shaped them and drove them to become a mental health professional to start with. That's usually got a lot to do with family of origin stuff where we were rewarded for tending to the needs of others and discouraged from advocating for our own needs. So, you know, if we receive our esteem from helping others, we become a helping professional. So it's not just therapists, it's it's the whole lot of us. Um, but I know Castingway and Hill in, in 2017, um, their publication identified that the person of the therapist is the single most important variable in the process of psychotherapy, and yet is it's the least addressed and the least studied. So there are people with bigger names and, you know, publications behind their names um, who are essentially saying what I'm saying, you know, some different angle of it. Um, but we are definitely minority. It's been interesting over the years. I've had the opportunity to attend some of those larger fancy conferences, if you will. And it's been interesting to kind of see this shift that's occurred in the last dozen plus year years that's I think gaining traction, but so along the same lines of looking at Bruce Wampold, um, folks like Dr. Barry Duncan and, and Dr. Scott Miller looking at feedback informed treatment and our listeners know that I'm a huge feedback informed treatment nerd and trainer, but this idea that there's this important kind of undercurrent that we really haven't discussed very much. And maybe because it hadn't occurred to us for a very long time that we were just always looking for, well, if X happens in therapy, then you need to do Y. And I can certainly relate with that as a new clinician, that it was like, well, I need to walk in with my little tool bag and then I'll be ready for whatever happens. And then I will be fine and I will be confident and I will help people. And that these are the messages that we're getting often from the outside and also internally, but that they're missing the mark when we're looking at the research, which is not to say that the interventions don't matter, um, but that they're not the critical element. 
you know, that it's, I think what's telling is often if you hear somebody talk about a really beautiful therapeutic experience, they're not saying, well, my therapist used to do this thing. They're saying, my therapist just made it a place where we could really talk and I just felt supported and I felt listened to. And you realize how important that person of the therapist is. I'm excited for the conversation that you and I are having today, Megan, because I think it's another kind of piece of this puzzle as we try to understand why, as we record this, more therapists are leaving the field of mental health care in the United States than are coming in and are graduating and are getting licensed. We have a problem here. <laughs> we need to deal with this. <laughs> yes, the, the system has a flat tire. That's the best way to say it. <laughs> so along the lines of that flat tire, can you start by defining for us the differences between some of these buzzwords that fly around. So including burnout, compassion, fatigue, vicarious traumatization, and secondary traumatic stress. Can you talk about what these are? Because I think sometimes we may default to assuming that these are all the same thing. Can you talk about how these are different? Yeah, and I'm glad to, because if we can't use language, shared language in an accurate manner, we can't advocate for ourselves because we don't, it's like a client saying, I'm upset, and we just let them get by with upset. And we don't really know what does that mean? What does that mean to you? Um, so there are people out there saying, I have compassion fatigue when really they have burnout, um, and vice versa. So essentially, the term burnout was coined by a psychoanalyst. Um, Freudenberger back in the 70s, who noted that his colleagues just kind of went dark, mood and motivation went dark in response to the helping work they were doing. So the term started with us, yet the research on it is more in the um, nurse and physician realm, and it's still been left to die as far as mental health professionals go, which is very sad. Um but to further differentiate among these these four different things, um, I'll start with compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue is that sense of exhaustion. It's the overwhelming physical and emotional exhaustion from using empathy in your work with others. Then we move on to vicarious traumatization. While compassion fatigue has emotional and physical components, vicarious traumatization is more intellectual. It's this cynicism, this view of the world as a toxic place, and doubts about one's own ability to make any bit of difference at all. So lack of sense of fulfillment, lack of sense of accomplishment, it's really the thought process has become dark and distorted. And then secondary traumatic stress is your client's traumatic stories, or if you're an art therapist, perhaps you're seeing traumatic images, you've got traumatic stories and or images running around in your nervous system, and you're starting to perhaps experience triggers. And intellectually, you know, I never went through the trauma, but you've been exposed to someone else's in such a, uh, a viscerally real way that now it's kind of yours. And the nature of the work that we do puts us at risk for compassion fatigue, for vicarious traumatization, and for secondary traumatic stress. You know, it doesn't matter where you work, the work we do puts us at risk for impairment in these three ways. Burnout is the frosting on the cake. Burnout implicates the work setting, the type of work being done, and the population being served. So for example, if you're working with people who are very chronic, um, and you only get to see the worst of the worst, and you never really get to help people see the sunshine, you don't know that side of their equation, you're chronically working in the dark. And that's going to affect you. If you are in a place that is not at all administratively supportive, or you have unrealistic expectations imposed upon you, you know, congratulations, that's a setup for burnout. You're already at risk for those other three. I call them companion syndromes. Comp compassion fatigue, vicarious traumatization, and secondary traumatic stress. I wish they were shorter. <laughs> it's a mouthful. But you're at risk for the three companion syndromes, but burnout is really um, the onus of the setting and the situation. So unfortunately, what happens is a lot of clinicians who experience burnout in their setting 
So by say, when I say burnout, I mean, they've also got one of the companion syndromes. You, you don't have burnout alone. Um, but they decide I can't take this anymore. I'm going to go into private practice and make things right. I'm going to create a situation where I'm providing therapy according to the standards I believe need to be upheld. So they go and set up their private practice. And what they don't realize is they've internalized the institutional values they were raised with. And part of this comes from family of origin, part comes from the graduate program and the internship placement settings and everything that comes after you graduate from grad school. But they take these values with them into their private practice and run themselves into the ground, believing they have to see every client who who calls, regardless of, are you a good fit for this person's needs even? You know, does this sound like someone you can help lead to great outcomes? Because if we're just taking everybody and anybody, we're not necessarily helping the majority of our caseload get to great outcomes. And that comes back to us as I'm a terrible clinician, when maybe we weren't because we didn't know much about ourselves as a person of the therapist to start with, we're not filtering the people who call. It's just one example of how these institutionalized values come with us into private practice and undermine us. You present this so simply, and also knowing that the actual manifestation of these ideas can be so complex. What do you find are some of the markers of burnout and these companion syndromes that maybe clinicians are missing? It's like, I think, are we looking for something really obvious where it's like, oh, well, and then I cussed out my client. It's like, uh oh, you know, like, we know we crossed <laughs> the line there. Um, but what are the other kind of much more covert ways that this plays out either internally in the self of therapist or in the therapy room or in the therapeutic relationship? Um, I think definitely, for example, for example, with vicarious traumatization, when you've got this mindset of cynicism and you can't do anything to help in this toxic world, that is going to shortchange your efforts at therapy. You know, you're going to be having anger and resentment towards your your clients. You know, well, I, I'd like to go to this training, but it costs $699. And frankly, my clients aren't worth that. You know, when you start having thoughts about your clients aren't worth it, there's a red flag. So, if you find yourself um, becoming de-energized in sessions, I mean, obviously it takes energy to be a therapist. We, we don't get compensated well for the amount of energy we put into our work. But if you find you're in a session and you're just kind of tanking out energetically, that's an indication that you may have compassion fatigue. So, you know, those are kind of two golden standards. Is there resentment? Are we shortchanging our clients? Are we sort of not presenting them with the energy that they deserve to be presented with? Because we just, we, we gave at the office 10 years ago, we don't have any more. Those are probably the two big ones. One thing that occurs to me, I'm curious how you think on this. And, and if you know any specifics, great, share them. But otherwise, if it's just opinion, what about for the clinician who feels like in general, they may not hit the marker of being burnt out, quote unquote, but they notice a notable energy change or investment change with a specific client or with a handful of clients that maybe have commonalities. Is compassion fatigue relationally specific? I don't believe I've ever seen any research on that. So this is opinion. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you're noticing it with certain clients, that is some lovely voice inside you speaking and saying, hey, I don't think this is my ideal client, you know, or hey, I need more supervision in working with this type of client. Because usually compassion fatigue is sort of like the whole kit and caboodle. Like you might still enjoy your clients, you might still care deeply for them, but you're just exhausted. This day and age, we're really good at using this language. And I don't know who came up with it, maybe you do. But the ultimate buzzword of self-care. Mm. Yes, your eyes close, you go, hmm. And I've certainly seen that term used in ways that are meant to be incredibly helpful, and sometimes are really missing the mark. Because at certain times in our lives, there's no amount of self care that's going to bring us back from a dark night of the soul. And that's speaking like as a fellow human. And I think most people could relate with that. Can you 
give me your reaction to the term self-care and how you see this kind of playing into these ideas about burnout, compassion, fatigue, vicarious traumatization. Yeah, I do not know who invented that. Um, it's a lovely idea in theory. <laughs> um, we want to teach our clients to take care of themselves on all fronts, you know, physically, emotionally, and intellectually. But if it's so important for us to be practicing self-care, why hasn't anyone taken the time to nail it down and define it mm. and give us the proper dosage? If it's a treatment, why don't we know the dosage? You know, what's the strength that I need? What's the frequency I need? What's the duration I need? And that's not out there. It doesn't exist. It's a unicorn. And sadly, self-care got latched onto quite strongly by the industry, the system which puts the onus back on the clinician. Like, oh, if you're burning out, you need to practice more self-care. It's your problem. It's nothing to do with us and our unrealistic expectations and unreasonable demands. So it puts the power in the wrong place. And we helping professionals do tend to take responsibility. It's kind of a family of origin thing. We take responsibility for things that maybe aren't ours to take responsibility for. And you see people knocking themselves out trying to practice self-care and then feeling absolutely deficient. It just adds to this sense of I'm not competent. You know, I can't burn enough incense to make my work enjoyable. <laughs> like, and when you stop and think about how we are rewarded for selflessness, how can a person without a self practice self-care? Yet that doesn't make any sense. And I think that's something a lot of therapists haven't, they haven't connected those dots yet. Because if they did, they'd be a little mad. <laughs> because it doesn't connect. It doesn't connect. It doesn't make any sense. I'm not supposed to have a self and I'm supposed to practice self-care. Okay. Um, so I, I don't advocate for self-care. Um, there is a, a, a model that I promote when I'm doing presentations for mental health professionals that is about extracting them from the um, illusory grip of chasing after the self-care unicorn and how strong that pull is and realizing the difference between self-care and something called life enrichment. And this comes from a published book by a friend and colleague of mine, Lisa Hines. The name is Beyond Self-Care for Helping Professionals. The subtitle is The Expressive Therapies Continuum and the Life Enrichment Model. And she is an art therapist, too. We trained at the same place under the same people who developed this pan-theoretical, integrative, very ahead-of-its-time model um, that has only in more recent years become popular in the art therapy profession because it is so on target with its um, integrative focus and how it matches advances in clinical neuroscience. So this model, originally the expressive therapies continuum, she has twisted into the life enrichment model to make it very applicable in a non-clinical sense for helping professionals to make sure that they are not striving to do self-care, but to actually enrich their lives. So the difference is self-care is, are you sleeping enough? Are you tending to healthy relations and distancing yourself from unhealthy relations? Um, are you getting enough of the right foods? It's the basic, like, this is what we're supposed to be doing anyhow. We're not all doing it, but this is what it means to take care of yourself. And that doesn't build a reserve of resilience to go in there and create better outcomes for yourself so you can create better outcomes for your clients. Life enrichment gives you that reserve. And this is based on um, research that she did, studies that she looked into related to environmental enrichment is something that helps prevent people from habituation and monotony and getting into bad habits, which is what occurs. So self-care, for example, if someone is really strong in, you know, their favorite thing for self-care is going out for double-decker nachos or whatever, then what happens when their favorite restaurant starts serving that, stops serving that? They don't have that tool anymore. So, uh-oh, I can't practice self-care. I'm sunk. And also there's habituation in which you've been so overexposed to the stimulus that you're not responding to it anymore. So your one self-care tool no longer has the desired effect 
What are you going to do? And the opposite of that, of that is enrichment. So you're really making sure that you are expanding yourself in a variety of different ways in order to create this internal reservoir. Thank you for explaining kind of the differences between self-care, which it sounds like more of kind of box checking. So initially becomes that my basic physiological needs are met. So I have shelter, I have someplace safe where I can house myself, I eat, I sleep, and then the addition, hopefully of some meaning and nurturance, I guess, is what comes up for me when I think about like what's intended by the phrase self-care. Can you give us some examples of what a life enrichment activity really looks like? Like, what is that? Yeah. Um, so in the book, if you can, this is helpful to envision, you know, visualize things. So it's not all abstract, but if you imagine a circle and then divide it up into six pieces of pie, six even pieces of pie. And these are six different types of information processing within the nervous system that are essential for optimal functioning. And we're all strong in some and not so strong in others. So if you take that piece of pie or the, the circle, divide it up into the six pieces of pie and label them, pick a piece of pie and call it movement, and then pick its opposite piece of pie, call that sensation. So there you've got your two, um, two poles of your physical needs. One is going to be about muscular output and regulating your energy and tension. And sensory is going to be about self-soothing and increasing your focus and concentration. So pick another piece of pie, call it pattern and routine. And then its opposite piece of pie is called emotion. And both of those actually focus on emotional information processing. Pattern and routine, mainstream psychotherapy hasn't really caught on to the role of perception in a person's mental world, but it is part of uh, containment, emotional containment. It's looking at patterns, underlying patterns. For example, the pandemic came and killed all of our daily patterns. So we didn't have containment anymore and we rushed into anxiety and in some cases depression. So we need that containment in order to regulate. And so part of healthy information processing in life enrichment is making sure you have pattern and routine in your life. And then the opposite piece of pie is emotion. That's going to be more of what we think of with affect, mood and motivation. And they both have healing properties. Um, for pattern and routine, it's helping us really detect boundaries and limits. And with emotion, it's really about the ability to tap into what's happening inside and to connect with the internal worlds of others. And then if we take the last two pieces of pie, one of them is going to be intellect and the opposite piece is going to be symbolism. And these are based on intellectual information processing where cognitive is what it sounds like. It's logical, linear, language-based. Um, the healing gift of that is going to be problem-solving and decision-making. And then the opposite piece of pie, symbolism, it gets its name from um, symbol relations which is really what cognitive is also like understanding math symbols. You know, four is greater than three. There's that little duck's beak that's facing in a certain direction to help establish relationship. Um, cognition is about pulling concepts together and understanding the relatedness. But in this life enrichment circle, cognition is very objective. It's how the world works. Whereas symbolism is how my internal world works. So the gift of that is going to be insight and intuition. So if we've got all six, if we're aware of all six pieces of this life enrichment circle, we can begin to figure out where am I strong and where do I just not have enough going on here so that we can start fortifying ourselves appropriately. And then the whole circle is held together. Like imagine you drew that circle and divided it into six pieces of pie. There'd be lines showing the circle and the division points between the pieces of pie. That's creative mental activity, which serves as a bridge, an integrative bridge between a person's challenges and their strengths. So if you want to look at creativity, it's really about dealing with the unfamiliar or it's dealing with the familiar in unfamiliar ways. And in order to generate creative mental activity, you're actually using a lot you know, we've got the large scale um, brain networks. We have our imagination or, or default mechanism or network. 
which is going to help us think outside the box. When we're burned out, and I'm using burnout generically, it's burnout and it's companion syndromes. But when we're in any of those states, we're not thinking outside the box. We don't have enough juice to do that. We're just looking for the shortcuts. I just need to move from point A to point B. I don't need it to be fancy. It can't be fancy. I don't have time to think about anything else. So when we're able to open up, that expands the default network or the imagination network. And then the executive network is really going to be about very focused, detailed problem solving. And a truly creative person, they've done some studies on musicians and found that highly creative people can get both of these opposing neural networks working in conjunction with each other. So creativity isn't just I painted a picture and that makes me creative. And it's so much more than that. It's about mental activity and it's generative and integrative, whereas burnout and its companion syndromes are the opposite, degenerative and disintegrative. What I'm hearing as you describe those is really, you already said kind of the holding of the tension between these concepts, but primarily about balance. You've already referenced the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact on mental health professionals. Can we carve out a minute to kind of talk about your conceptualization of what just a pandemic is being, let's just say, a relatable example that everybody is familiar with? When you're thinking about the life enrichment model, and then you layer on the complexity brought on by the pandemic, you already talked about some of it of like the loss of pattern and routine. It's like how many of us have have wiped down our cereal boxes with Clorox wipes before, you know, how many of us are afraid to check the mail. Like, it's like, I look back on those early days in the conversations and go, well, that was unusual. Um, what are, what are some of those impacts? Because I think sometimes it's easy for us to forget how much these things are throwing us out of balance, not just as practitioners, but as like human beings. Yeah. And I think the routine and pattern um, section of the pie in the life enrichment model is the best place to start talking about that because it represents perceptual information processing, which is largely non-conscious, and yet it's how we internalize the external world. So it's huge in an individual's mental world. What are we internalizing? And so that we had patterns and routine, they were not necessarily optimal. And the book that, that Lisa Hines published that I referenced, that's a 2019 publication. So that was before the pandemic kicked in, when we were already struggling with pattern and routine that wasn't necessarily optimal. Um, and the pandemic came and what we were then forced to internalize was just complete chaos. And our own fear. We were dealing with the fears of society, as we saw it portrayed in the media, the fears of our clients as they came to us, or if someone was, I was teaching at the time. So the fears of our students, our future mental health professionals, um, where were we supposed to go? Who was going to take care of us when everyone looked to us to somehow reestablish pattern and routine? but we didn't have any either. Um, when you do not have effective pattern and routine going, there's emotional disequilibrium. That whole emotional information processing is going to be challenged. So the uptick in depression and anxiety was happening to us as a profession, not just to society. But the loss of pattern, sufficient pattern and routine also impacts our cognitive abilities. So decision-making, problem-solving, just connecting the dots intellectually was harder for us. And yet our clients were coming to us or our graduate students were coming to us looking for answers, looking, you know, so many um, on-site supervisors and faculty supervisors of graduate interns were dealing with, how do we do internship when we're not doing in person therapy anymore and the facility doesn't have the capacity for telehealth. It was just crazy. The problem solving that we were thrown into as clinicians as a whole while dealing with the, the quicksand that we were standing in. We had no platform for making those decisions in the most informed way. There wasn't the information. They're really complicated concepts that I don't think we as a profession 
talk about in a preventative and early intervention way, like what I'm thinking about in addition to the pandemic, checked the news in the last few days, seeing headlines about another mass shooting. And I'm automatically taken back to the mass shooting that we had in my community. And that that following day, here I am as a professional asked by one of the colleges locally to come and do a group with the students who had been affected, um, who had lost some of their colleagues and peers during our mass shooting. And aware as it was unfolding of this parallel process of here I am walking in, carrying my own grief that I'm still very much sorting through, while also appreciating the grief of these people around me that I've been asked to help where I'm uniquely qualified because of past life experiences, volunteer opportunities, trainings, yada, yada, yada. And in that moment, the appreciation of like, not just like self as therapist, but just self and almost like the war between self as therapist and self in exactly what you said, where it was like, well, who's going to take care of me? And like, I remember he didn't laugh. Um, but I remember when I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Irv Yalom, I made a joke about like, so who's your therapist? Um, because like, here you are talking to who many of us would consider like one of the grandparents of psychotherapy as we know it. And it's like, and here's he talking about his own experience in needing someone to talk to and a psychotherapist and kind of this, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine idea. But like, how do any of us take care of ourselves while we're so tasked with being taken with taking care of others? Um, And I've had that thought myself in changes in my caseload over the years, just this appreciation of regardless of how many stories you're holding, whether it's supervisees or students or patients or clients, participants, whatever language you use as you move through the world as a mental health professional, these are all stories, like stories that we're storing in our hearts. And myself in moments feeling like I'm buckling under the weight of the stories and how much more profound that is when I too am questioning my beliefs and my values and I may be cynical about the world and not knowing how to make sense of whatever I'm going through, whether or not it's a parallel process with what is going on in the community around me. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, that's existential. Yeah. <laughs> I just got very heady. <laughs> <laughs> but it's what we were forced into. And, you know, I think our kind received way less attention from the media than physicians did. High to the pandemic, everyone was looking to the local physician for answers, and they didn't know. They never encountered this thing before. Um, And their mental health rates weren't so good prior to the pandemic. The pandemic really ripped the Band-Aid off to expose all of the vulnerabilities among helping professionals in general. You know, the the teachers had it bad. (laughs) They were caught between, you know, warring factions of parents um, who weren't that concerned about the safety of the school faculty. Um, All helping professionals really took a hit because of the pandemic, and it underscored how the system has not been set up to really adequately support and sustain our kind. I mean, there's a paycheck, there's benefits, that sort of thing. But when we look at the difference between self-sacrifice and self-sustenance, it's very different. And we're called in our role as helping professionals, oftentimes it's to sacrifice. You know, how many of us have worked in places where we were trained how to deal with physically aggressive and combative people? Raises the expectation is you could have a broken arm. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Raise all your limbs. Um, you know, I look back and think, wow, the expectation was that we should, you know, it's going to come, people are going to throw a punch at you. It's not just going to be a verbal assault, you got to know what to do for the physical, but you have to do it in these certain ways. Otherwise, the facility won't stand behind you. Uh, You know, we're expected to sacrifice, and we don't question that. But how are we sustaining ourselves? And the pandemic really shone the light on how the system, you know, air quotes, the system that we're all tethered to in some way hasn't sustained us. Without our magic wands to be able to 
magically change said system, then it becomes another to do for mental health professionals. So I can see somebody listening to this conversation. I, I can see people that are like, pause, hold on, I need to go cry. Um, and, and I can also hear like, pause, great. One more thing I have to do because the system isn't set up to adequately support me. How do you respond to that? Where it's like, okay, so like here, it's already let you down, but here, do more. And and I think that's probably part of the reason why you're saying like, let's get away of the self, from the self-care paradigm. But please speak to that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is where the hope comes in, actually. So for anyone who's like running for facial tissue right now, grab it and come back because <laughs> there's hope. Um, that's what creative mental activity is. You know, if there's no hope, you don't need to create. To create is to generate. It's to generate the new. And we all have that inside of ourselves. And um, Castingway and Hill's work in 2017 did identify that creativity is part of what is necessary to help a clinician flourish. And that a lot of the information that we've swallowed as germane truth is don't be creative with your clients because that's not evidence-based. And actually that's having a deleterious effect on us, this constant marching to evidence-based and fearing our own imaginations and responsiveness in sessions. So we need that creativity. Um, I'll walk you quickly through a model from 1926, not by a therapist, um, a man named Graham Wallace. And he was looking at how do people think? Like, how do new ideas come into existence? What is this? And so his work um, is called The Art of Thought. It got republished in 2018. And he's got four stages of what he calls the creative process. That sounds just like therapy to me. But if the therapist isn't creative, it's that's where it starts, you know, separating from Wallace's model of the creative process. But the first step is called preparation. Preparation is where you find your problem. What is the problem? Well, we found our problem. It's the system as we know it is kind of impairing us and discouraging us from working while impaired. So we practice self-care, but we don't know what that is. All this is the problem. Great. If you know what the problem is, you're ready for the next stage. The next stage of the creative process is called incubation. And we hate that. Incubation is about anxiety and ambiguity because we don't know when it's going to end. That's the problem. And we don't like that in our in our sessions. You know, we like helping our clients clarify the issue. That's preparation. Incubation is where it seems like there's no therapeutic movement whatsoever. The client is wandering around in circles. And we do that in our own lives too. We've identified the problem, but should we approach it this way, that way? We're not sure. And in incubation, it lasts as long as it needs to. So we need to honor that and take it into consideration and build it into our process. So we can, instead of looking at, oh no, something's failing. It's like, no, this is right where we're supposed to be. We're in incubation, which is the stage before illumination. That's the one, that's the light bulb over your head. Aha, I know what to do about the problem. And we love it when our clients come into the office with their illuminations or when the illuminations happen in therapy, but illumination only happened because of the incubation process. And then we have the fourth phase, which is verification. And that's where we test it out. So we had our great illuminating idea. Now let's run it and see what happens. Sometimes it works great and we can high five each other. And sometimes oh, it didn't work so well. So we have to go back to some earlier stage in the creative process, but it, it just kind of ebbs and flows and is natural. And I think if more therapists can look upon their work as part of a creative process, it will begin to think outside their own box. So many therapists claim they're not creative because they've got very narrow ideas about what that even means. But if we start to cultivate our own creative mental activity and let it come over into our therapy sessions with clients, this doesn't mean it's the opposite of evidence-based. That, that has nothing to do with it. It's sort of like if you wear a white shirt, is that in opposition to evidence-based treatment? Not that we know of. <laughs> it's something totally different. So 
there is hope. If we can nurture our creativity, that's really what the life enrichment model is, is positing, that if we can bring creativity back into our own self-identities and our own practices, that that is going to create the reserve we need to get through the lows that inevitably come with our career. And when we're creative, we can start creating other ways of looking at our situation and developing other solutions. So I see the hope as being, yeah, it's kind of on the ground, on the, you know, in the trenches, therapist by therapist, having this shift in perspective, that's where the hope comes from. Building on that idea, and again, this is probably more opinion-based, when we look at the research about these concepts, you know, how many clinicians self-identify as having experienced burnout or compassion fatigue or, you know, insert term here, and you see that a large minority, if not the majority, somehow endorse these ideas, I'm thinking about a different stage-based model, but I'm thinking of stages of change and speaking to someone who's worked in the addiction field for quite a while. One of the ideas that keeps coming up is the concept of lapse or relapse and our ability to step outside this cycle and then we get back into pre-contemplation and contemplation and we go through these things again and that this is basically an expected part because of the work that you do and diving into the research, do you believe that effectively these buzzwords are really just part of the human experience and therefore part of the therapist experience? Because I can think of times in my life where whatever was unfolding around me essentially almost felt like it necessitated a loss of creativity. You know, I'm going back for myself to the earlier days of the pandemic, as I'm sure many clinicians were where you're like trying to figure out, is this HIPAA compliant? Am I out of compliance with my insurance contracts? Like, how am I going to be tending to my clients while also now I'm a teacher? You know, like whatever these thoughts are, where it's not a time that's nurturing creativity. And so we've stepped so far away from that creativity and we're deeply in survival mode is part of the paradigm that needs to shift that this is simply almost an expected part of what it means to be not just a therapist, but a human is a loss of creativity and the sense of compassion, fatigue, and burnout. I definitely think that connectedness with having lost creativity, and there are creatives who go to therapy to try to find their creativity again. You know, if their livelihood comes from that, that's kind of important. Um, but for the rest of us, it happens as well. And it, it is an ebb and flow. When we're in survival mode, we've contracted and creativity lets us expand. And so it's not, can we prevent contracting from ever happening again? No, that's not normal. Um, but if we can build our reserve during the opportunities we have to expand, that helps us ride out the periods where we have to contract. Instead of, oh my gosh, this is going to kill me. It's, okay, I've been here before. Not exactly but last time I was in this boat, here's what I implemented. Here's what I had to let go of. It's allowing you to make those connections and really think and be strategic instead of just reactive. When you say contractions, my brain, brain went straight to like, so it's Lamaze for therapists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> where it's like, but, but really like you're anticipating that this thing is going to happen because it's part of the experience that we would anticipate. And then it allows us I think that in and of itself, the expectation that it may occur can often sometimes make it easier. Not always. I think there could always obviously be the side where it could make us hypervigilant and tend toward more anxiety of like, I don't want the thing to happen again. Um, but also inside that is a possibility of building in systems where it becomes more reflective. I, I was a co-trainer with a colleague of mine who's presented on the platform before named Robert Scholes, and he uses the book called Black Box Thinking um, to talk about these concepts and how like the flight industry after a uh, incident will try to really deconstruct how did we get here and how do we avoid it next time for everybody's safety. And that this book is looking at that idea in application to our lives as a whole of, of when things have gone wrong, what do we learn from them? Um, you know, gone wrong being relative, but what do we learn so we can carry forward? And I think anybody listening has probably experienced dark night of the soul. Um, and then what I'm hearing from you is kind of how do we create ways for us to 
manage that when it happens or how do we even become cognizant of the fact that maybe we're in it even as we speak and not necessarily admitting because we're so conditioned to say I can do anything and of course I'll sign right here and I'll I'll be the best that you can ever be and I'm going to keep getting gold stars all the time Um, that we have difficulty acknowledging often when we have a hard time and when we're suffering definitely definitely I think that's you know, I don't know that there's scientific evidence, but I think that's kind of a common denominator among helping professionals is we get our esteem from helping others. So, and we genuinely care and we want to help. Um, and then when we can't, because of a fire hose being pointed in our direction, we feel like the failures. And I think it's it's healthier if you go back to the Wallace model of um, creativity to just know Every time you hit verification and do the high five thing, yay, my light bulb moment gave me the light I needed to solve this problem. It worked out great. There's always going to be another problem to find. You know, I think our culture is very big on the idea that we should be able to manage all of our challenges once and for all, and then it'll be good, just like a TV commercial. And the reality is, no, we're going to face challenges and obstacles throughout our lives. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank or don't. It doesn't matter what your educational degree is. There's going to be challenges. So it's not, did you or did you not have challenges? It's how did you rise to the occasion? And self-care is not proactive. It's not preventative. It's more reactive and grasping at straws because someone said it would work. Whereas taking the life enrichment approach is much more about preventative and proactive measures with the expectation, it's sort of like saving for a rainy day. You know there's going to be a rainy day. You know, that's why you're saving. <laughs> with that in mind, if we're looking through the lens of life enrichment, what do life enriching interventions activities look like? Well, when I am working with people in like workshops, what I'll do is I'll take them on a quick tour. I like crowd sourcing. So they're sharing their own ideas, identifying which pieces of pie they're really strong in and where they've got a deficit so they can share their strengths with others. So here's something I do that is meeting my needs in the, say, routine and pattern department. But I have to jumpstart the conversation with here are quick examples. So for movement, the, the idea behind life enrichment is you're already doing things to enrich your life and you're not even paying attention. So part of it is directing your attention to these small, subtle things you can do to really be a game changer. It doesn't have to be running out to a a spa massage for an hour and a half. It can be something as simple as what you're already doing. So for movement, if you have to go to a store when you're driving there, you park your car. You can park far away from the door and really just experience moving and being in your body. That's not going out of the way. It's very easy to do. For sensation, there are a lot of coffee drinkers in this country. What if instead of quit getting your brew and sucking it down, if you took the time to hold it in your hands and feel the warmth? And what if you smelled it before ingesting? You already have the coffee, so this is not going out of your way. It's just taking the time to intentionally put your focus there and derive the data from your hands, your nose, For routine and pattern, it's a common prescription for people with depression, but we can do it too. What if you organized your sock drawer? You have to put away your laundry. So instead of just opening a drawer and cramming it all in and hoping nothing falls out, what if instead you organized according to pattern or color or you're the one who gets to call the shots, but you have to put your socks away anyhow? What if you made order out of chaos? And then take in what that information does to your internal world. We're looking for internal shifts here. Um, For emotion, beauty. Neuroaesthetics is its own field. So when we take in visually a thing of beauty, that creates a lift inside. I uh, keep a bouquet of fresh flowers at my desk at all times. So I can just look away. I do telehealth. I can look away from my client's face and at the bouquet of flowers if I need a pop. I can do that at any time of the day for that emotional lift. Color color enlivens affect. So that's simple. You go to the grocery store, they sell flowers. Amazing. <laughs> you can just buy them there. Cognitive, also easy. 
that's just learning something new. So the next time a song crosses your mind and you recognize it's from this 90s band you really used to enjoy, can't remember their name, instead of just letting the thought drift by, look it up online. Most of us have a device available to us at all times. Look it up. What was the name of the band? Oh, okay. Now you know. So instead of letting these questions just fall to the side, check it out. Learn something new. That reinforces cognition. And for symbolism, we have full moons. I don't happen to know when the next one is coming, but we've got full moons. And an exercise for that is just going out and spending five minutes with the full moon and wondering who else is out here looking at this full moon right now and what are they thinking about? And how many people for centuries past have come out to look at essentially the same moon and what was on their minds? That starts taking you outside of the world of nuts and bolts of daily everything, outside yourself into really the cosmos and that more soulful spiritual place inside where you can start developing that relationship with self and some insight and self-awareness. And then for creativity, the hack, a simple hack is if you're driving from point A to point B and it's old hat to you, it's habitual, what if you took a different route? What if you spent five extra minutes wandering through a neighborhood instead of going through the main roads and just seeing something new? You might discover a new little market you didn't know existed, a new little playground you could take your kids or grandkids to. Oh, a fascinating paint job with you know maybe some information about the people who just did the paint job that you can have done to your house. It's just new data and our brains crave novelty and burnout is essentially linked to the lack of novelty or a fire hose of such novelty that we can't process it at all. So those are quick hacks. Thank you. I appreciate those hacks and I appreciate the reminder about the simplicity because I think that's one of the real drawbacks of the self-care model is it, it somehow can get boiled down to, well, like we need to get our nails done. Um, and it's like, what if I don't have the time or the money or the childcare or, you know, what, whatever it is that is preventing that from happening. And I think it can feel really discouraging when we want to be doing these things to take care of ourselves, but we're not able to check that box because it feels too big or for whatever reason, it's not appropriate for us right now. And so I appreciate the simplicity of the ideas that you're proposing um, because they're so simple, but they're, they really are basically neurological hacks um, to bypass some of our automatic systems and kind of liven things back up. Um, Megan, you and I could keep talking on this topic. I think it's obviously a really important one, and it's something that you're clearly really passionate about. For our listeners that want to learn more about you and about your work, how do they do that? They can go to my website, which is my name, meganvanmeter.com. And they can just check out my approach. I am an art therapist. I do online art therapy licensed in Texas, Arizona, and Indiana. And I am providing these outside-the-box services based on the model that the life enrichment model came from, the expressive therapies continuum, looking to integrate what deserves to be integrated. And this is how we create better outcomes for ourselves and our clients. Thank you for spending this time. You have listed out so many concepts that I think are so helpful in describing the circle model for life enrichment and also really understanding these different stages of creativity and then where we can operate within that to inject our lives with more meaning, significance, creativity as ways to hopefully prevent um, these bad words that we've been talking about today. I really, I think I appreciate it. I know it's a great reminder for me as a human and as a therapist. Thank you for your work trying to deconstruct these concepts for clinicians, because sometimes it's like one of those things that when we realize that we're burned out, we have been burned out for such a very long time. And it's hard to know how we can get ourselves back to a place where we're not just spent. So thank you for joining us today and giving us some really helpful ideas, Megan. I appreciate it. Well, you're, way, you're welcome. Thank you for letting me spill my beans here. And I just want to let people know if you identify with burnout, compassion fatigue, vicarious traumatization, or secondary traumatic stress, it is not your fault. Thank you, Megan. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Take care. 
You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.